Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. In today's episode, we take you to our global security forum that was originally held during our annual international symposium and convention. The topic of the forum was the Taliban, global security and counterterrorism 20 years after the beginning of Afghanistan and Iraq. As we shared at the beginning of the forum, EMSO is central to combat operations across all warfighting domains and is quickly becoming the backbone of global security. So we wanted to put together a panel of experts to discuss this important topic for our audience. Our panel of experts included our moderator, Mr. Doug Ollivant, Senior National Security Studies Fellow at New America Foundation and Managing Partner at Manted International. We also welcomed Ambassador Douglas Lute, former United States Permanent Representative to the North Atlantic Council, NATO's standing political body, Mr. Mark Kimmett, former Assistant Secretary for Political and Military Affairs under President George W. Bush, and Mr. Peter Bergen, journalist, documentary producer, CNN National Security Analyst, and Vice President for Global Studies and Fellow at New America. Let's listen in. So we've assembled this distinguished panel for you today. Uh, to my immediate right is Peter Bergen. He is the Vice President of New America, a contributor to CNN, a professor of practice at Arizona State University, but you probably know him best from his wide-ranging uh, number of books that he's written and his films, most of which focus on Afghanistan, 9-11, and the war on terror. Uh, next, we have Ambassador Doug Lute. Uh, Doug Lute was most recently the U.S. ambassador to NATO. Uh, prior to that, he served in a variety of roles in the White House as a special assistant and full assistant to Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. And prior to that, he served as a three-star general as the J3 of the Joint Staff. And finally, at the far end of the table, we have the Honorable Mark Kimmett. Uh, Mr. Kimmett was the Assistant Secretary of State for Political and Military Affairs. Prior to that, he was the Deputy Secretary of Defense for Middle East Issues. And prior to that, a one-star general uh, in the Army. And with that, uh, we'll turn first to... General Lute. Okay, thanks. Um, thanks, Doug. So uh, as the opening of uh, the comments among the three of us, I thought I'd start by laying out a framework for this conversation. And, and this will be a framework that for, for many of the experts in the room will be quite familiar, but maybe not for everybody. So let's start with a framework. Uh, I'd like to refer to this as the CT counterterrorism framework, and it's become sort of conventional wisdom now over the last 20 years. And this is, of course, the targeting cycle of find, fix, and finish. That's essentially the sum of a CT operation at the tactical level, right? And let me just unpack those a little because when we look into what is entailed in each of these three steps, find, fix, and finish, um, it'll be revealing uh, as to the chore we've outlined for ourselves in Afghanistan, given that we don't have troops on the ground, right? So each of these will become somewhat more difficult. So first of all, find, um, find essentially means 
figure out who your target is and go find this guy or gal, mostly guys, right? It, it demonstrates that CT begins always as an intel operation. So this is very much an intel-driven military operation. Uh, on the ground, in practice, a finding means fusing intelligence from all different sources. So electronic sources, signals intelligence, uh, image intelligence, uh, uh, prominently human intelligence. And remember, all these are going to be pressed through the filter of how do we do this now that we're not in Afghanistan, right? Uh, but the fusion of intelligence, and it's done not only in a U.S. setting, but with the U.S. and its partners. So yes, NATO allies in the case, formerly in the case of Afghanistan, but beyond that, partners, indigenous partners like the Afghan Security Forces or the Afghan Intelligence Service. Um, the finding step can take months. Uh, just as a probably the iconic example, remember that it took us 10 years to find bin Laden, right? From Tora Bora to Abbottabad, it's roughly a decade, okay? So, and that was all finding, okay? So this can take a long, long time. It requires a lot of patience. It's painstaking detective work. You're looking for the needle in the haystack. Um, and, and that's just the first of the three steps. The next is to fix. That is, having laid eyes or found a lead to a particular terrorism target, you've got to put that target in a targetable location. Uh, by that, fixing him in terms of time and location, right? So you've got to have a firm um, set target in terms of time and location, and you've got to account in the fixing stage for the potential of collateral damage. So ideally, you want to fix this person in a car on an isolated road with no children near, nearby or in an isolated compound or something, right? So the, the targeting cycle becomes even more complex when you go beyond just finding and you add this question of fixing. The whole idea of fixing is to set up a strike, right? Which of course is a third step, finish, if you will, in Stan McChrystal terms. Uh, and, and by finish, we mean strike with timeliness and precision. And of course, over the last 20 years, we've matured a lot in terms of our options here. We can do it from the ground, we can do it from the air, we can launch airborne systems from the sea, uh, we can do it nearby, we can do it from afar, and so forth. We can do it um, alone, we can do it with NATO partners, or NATO allies, or we can do it with indigenous partners. So there are a lot of Finnish options. And most of the public fixation, fascination with counterterrorism has to do with this third step. And we race past the first two, uh, which are really much, much more difficult. Now, we've been using this model, find, fix, and finish, for about 20 years uh, in, in both uh, Afghanistan and using Afghanistan as a platform for Pakistan, launching these kinds of operations into Pakistan. Again, the Abbottabad raid in, in 2011 is probably the classic, the classic case of that, but also using it elsewhere. So obviously in Iraq, uh, where uh, our counterterrorism forces took on uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, but on the periphery of those conflicts as well. So Yemen, Somalia, uh, the Sahel in Africa and, and elsewhere. So this is a pretty well-established model. Um, with the Biden administration's decision to affirm the Trump agreement to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. So remember, it was President Trump in February of 2020 who signed the agreement, bilateral agreement with the Taliban that um, given certain conditions, and we can argue about the conditions and how well they were adhered to and so forth, the U.S. would withdraw all troops and all NATO troops as well 
by May 1st of this year. And in April, after several months of looking at this decision, the Biden administration uh, affirmed the, the decision uh, and decided to go ahead and withdraw all U.S. troops. In the course of both the agreement last February and the Biden affirmation of that agreement this spring, each of the steps I've outlined became much more difficult, sort of an order of magnitude more difficult, um, because they denied us the, loca the local flavor of counterterrorism. It denied us indigenous partners. It denied us a persistent presence. In some cases, access to sources in the find, uh, in the find and fix stages. And it, and it limited, it scaled down our ability to strike as well. Because of course, the physical conditions in Afghanistan, remote, landlocked, uh, no friendly neighbors, no U.S. bases in the neighboring uh, in, in the neighborhood, all are complicating factors uh, in the in the uh, CT equation going forward. Why did Biden take this decision? Here's what I understand to be obviously not in the government, not party to those decisions, but based on public statements and sort of the public record, this is kind of the argument that that they lay out. Um, they say first of all, the counterterrorism threat emanating from Afghanistan and Pakistan is not what it was in 2001. So core Al-Qaeda, so bin Laden himself, but uh, Zawahiri, the core leadership of the, of the movement that brought us 9-11 has been decimated in the 20 years since 9-11. And now it's also true that it's not defeated, it's not eliminated, but it's much diminished. By my count, the last attack emanating from core Al-Qaeda, that core leadership, outside of Afghanistan and Pakistan, was the London attack in 2005. Now, Peter, you're the resident expert at this table on this, so correct me if I'm wrong. But it's been a long time since core Al-Qaeda reached beyond those boundaries of Afghanistan and Pakistan and, and harmed our vital national interests, security of America or its allies. Um, it's also true that Al-Qaeda is not alone in that region. So there's, there's a branch of the Islamic State, the so-called Islamic State in the Khorasan province, which is an old historic uh, regional uh, uh, setting there in Afghanistan and Pakistan. It has cropped up, uh, but it too has not yet struck from outside that region. It's a local, if perhaps regional challenge, but not a transnational challenge. And by the way, uh, ISIS, ISKP is also at war with the Taliban, right? So there's that complicating fact. Um, and the bottom line is uh, some group, the Taliban uh, and Al-Qaeda as one and the same. And while related, the Taliban has never threatened nor harmed an American outside of Afghanistan proper, not once. They have no out extraterritorial uh, ambitions. They don't have a global, um, uh, sort of a, a global jihadi uh, motivation. They are Afghans. So when you add those points up, I think the Biden administration, with some comfort, said, look, the threat's just not what it was in 2001. In fact, if anything, branches of al-Qaeda and the Islamic State are more dangerous elsewhere. So think uh, pockets in Syria, um, Somalia, Yemen, the Sahel, and so forth. The second factor I think they took on is, look, we're much better at CT today. Our capabilities are much better than they were 20 years ago. I mean, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, right, in 2001, we were looking for, for maps of Afghanistan. We didn't even have maps 
Uh, we had almost no language capability. We had virtually no on-the-ground experience, a very limited compartment, and maybe in our in in the CIA and so forth. Right? We didn't know much about Afghanistan. We've been there for 20 years now. Right? And in that 20 years, we've invested in our CT capabilities in a way that I think gave the Biden administration some confidence that we could do this, even given the complicating factors, do this from afar. So our CT capability is much better. And then the third factor I think that they took on is that, look, we're just a much harder target than we were. We've spent 20 years investing in homeland security, homeland defense, um, I mean, we're still taking our shoes off at the airport, unless you have, uh, you know, what is it, pre, the pre, pre, TSA pre-check, okay, pre-check. which I recommend. Um, but, you know, Clear. if you told bin Laden, uh, okay, in 2001, that Americans 20 years later are still going to be taking your shoes off, you know, because of some, some imagined threat uh, to airplanes, uh, you know, he would, he's probably rather satisfied, even given his conditions. Um, but the, the emergence of DHS, the... Uh, trying to make coherent sense of our intelligence community, the 16 agencies that are now under the Department of uh, National, or Directorate of National Intelligence, DNI umbrella, is another uh, reform. We have today a global CT network of partners and allies that didn't exist in 2001. And among these allies and partners, we share information much more freely. It's not perfect. And it doesn't provide us perfect insurance against another attack on the homeland. But it's much better than it was in 2001. Look, the short answer here is I think the Biden administration concluded that 2021 is not 2001. And the conditions across all these factors have changed uh, sufficiently to accept some additional risk with regard to CT in Afghanistan. So look, we can, and we may this afternoon, debate the decision. We may, we could certainly um, uh, regret the execution of the withdrawal itself, which left us with these images, these tragic images of the chaos at Kabul International Airport, and and frankly, the the very regrettable, even horrendous humanitarian conditions that our former Afghan partners are now living with in Afghanistan. But when it comes down to the narrow topic that Doug asked us to focus on, that is counterterrorism, I would argue that you can make a case that the Biden administration was justified in its decision to scale back our effort in Afghanistan and to focus elsewhere. So let me just start with some of that sort of provocation and see where Peter and, uh, and Doug take us. Well, thank you, Doug. Um, and uh, it's a very great honor to be on this panel with this very distinguished group. Um, so I'm gonna uh, kind of respond to uh, some things that General Lute alluded to uh, before getting into my own kind of commentary. Um, because I think he made the case very eloquently, sort of essentially the Biden case for why we why we should leave, should have why why it was the right decision to leave. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that you're defending every part of it, and I, I think there are basically the two kind of elements to, to this. There's uh, the question of execution, which I think everybody can agree was you know not, uh, it was not well executed. And then there was a question of, was it a good policy choice? Now, I come down on it was a poor policy choice. And I I accept that much of what General Lute has said is correct. The last core Al-Qaeda attack in, uh, you know, the lethal attack was uh, 7-7-2005. That's 15 plus years ago. There were more recent efforts. And interestingly, you know, there's kind of a narrative the Taliban haven't tried to attack the United States 
Faisal Shahzad, who was the son of a, the vice air chief of, in Pakistan, and also had the wonderful job of being a financial analyst of the Elizabeth Arden Cosmetics Company uh, before he became a hardened jihadist, tried to blow up a SUV in Times Square on May 1st, 2011. He was completely unknown to US law enforcement. He drove a van, in, uh, an SUV loaded with a bomb into the most heavily policed area in the world on a Saturday night at 6 p.m. in order to kill as many people as possible. Um, luckily, the bomb failed. The bomb probably failed because we now, and this gets to what General Luke was saying, we have a layered defense. So every defense possible failed with Faisal Shahzad. He was completely unknown to the FBI. But what didn't fail was the CIA drone program because he only had five days of instruction by the Pakistani Taliban in the federally administered tribal areas to build this bomb. Why did he have only five days? Probably because of the drone program, probably because it was too dangerous. And if you look at the Abbottabad documents, uh, the biggest supporter of the CIA drone program turns out to be Osama bin Laden uh, because he was. the documents are full of accounts of how damaging the drone program was to his team, to his middle managers, to his leaders, to his own family members. Two of his sons have died in drone strikes. Uh, three of them, in fact. Uh, one of them after, he, after bin Laden was killed. Uh, so <clears throat> the drone program has been very effective. And so in, in defending the Biden administration kind of rationale for a minute here, you know, on 9-11, there was 16 people on the no-fly list. The last time there was a publicly available figure, there were 84,000. There are one and a half million on the tide list, which is a secondary, you go into secondary screening if you're coming to the United States. No DHS, no TSA, no NCTC, relatively few joint terrorism task forces. We are a much harder target. That is true. I guess where I, I have, uh, I, I depart from the Biden administration's view in, on sort of three levels. One, um, there's this kind of narrative, well, we have other counterterrorism fights elsewhere. Well, of course, the United States can do more than one counterterrorism fight at a time. And, you know, there's kind of a logical inconsistency with saying, well, we, there are other counterterrorism fights, but we're going to handle this one, you know, over the horizon. <laughs> so it's not like that, that one went away. And, of course, the biggest terrorism threat going forward is probably Afghanistan. And when I say Afghanistan, I mean Afghanistan and Pakistan. It's not Yemen. It's not Somalia. Uh, because, you know, what we've learned from many years of doing this is that these groups are not strong. They prey on weak hosts. And the, weak, the weaker the host, the stronger these groups. And you can almost make a political science statement that the weaker a Muslim state is, uh, the more, the, more the, the stronger these groups will become, whether it's Somalia or Yemen or potentially Afghanistan two or three years down the road. Um, so that my, my concern is about not you know tomorrow, but what does this look like two or three years from now? I always thought a Democrat president would never make this decision, whether it was Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden, because the political risks of being wrong about it are pretty high, and the political gains of doing it are actually very low, because there was no constituency begging for this to happen in the United States. If you ask Americans, do you want to pull out Afghanistan? They would say, yeah. Generally speaking, that's... But when you say, when you get into the details and how it was executed, they, they change their mind, because, um, um, you know, Americans don't like to lose, and, and it, this looked like a loss, and it was poorly executed. Uh, so I, I think that... You know, the, the, it's a defensible decision on lots of levels. Um, but but what does it look like two or three years down the road getting to the kind of the, the question at hand? So the Taliban are in a much stronger position they are today than they were uh, on, let's say, September 10th, 2001. You know, the Ahmed Massoud, the 32-year-old son of Ahmed Shah Massoud, he put up resistance for, what, two weeks? Um, and he's now 
you know, either in the Panjir Valley or in Tajikistan. Uh, Amr al-Saleh is in Tajikistan, describing himself as the rightfully elected president of Afghanistan, which he is in some levels, uh, since Ghani abdicated. Um, but you know, the, the resistance is essentially a non-factor, which was not true in the previous iteration. Uh, you, we did have, Masood had uh, ways to reinforce him, the older Masood had ways to reinforce himself from Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, all that is gone. So the Taliban are in a stronger place and they have all our materiel um, and they're gonna be very hard to kind of dislodge. But I don't think they're here forever and I'm looking, at, looking out in a three to four year uh, time frame because I think four things can happen, each one of which change the politics around this. And do the thought experiment where it's President Trump in 2024, or President Marco Rubio, or President Joe Biden again, or President Kamal Harris, some new president, uh, the politics can change. So I think there are four things that would change the politics, each one of which could change it fairly dramatically. And the reason I say these things is because we've seen this movie before. Tony Blinken, Joe Biden presided over the Iraq withdrawal in December of 2011. Uh, you know, they wanted to go. They, they, you know, it was their negotiation. And three years later, Obama changed his mind. Why did he change his mind? It began with the Yazidis and the uh, threat of genocide. Uh, it didn't begin with Jim Foley. Jim Foley happened after the threat against the Yazidis. That's when we Americans started uh, uh, their operations against ISIS. Uh, and it was in reaction to that that ISIS beheaded Jim Foley, although I'm sure they were going to do that anyway. Uh, so the first thing the Taliban could do is revert to what they've done in the past, which is ethnic cleansing on a major scale against the Hazara. Um, the second thing they, and of course, they've got some window dressing. They have one Hazara in a junior cabinet position. And, and, and a kind of related point, um, I was interviewed Edmund Fitton Brown, who's in charge of the UN um, at a public here, at pu public uh, discussion in Doha. He's in charge of the UN cell monitoring Taliban and Al-Qaeda, and I think they produce very useful reports on this subject. Now, we know that Siraj Akhani is, a, uh, according to the UN, on, on the leadership council of Al-Qaeda. So it's the first time in history that Al-Qaeda has inserted a essentially made man into a senior cabinet position as the Minister of Interior in Afghanistan. And I said to, I said to Fitton Brown, uh, who's one of these English diplomats who you look up online, there's basically no information about him. <laughs> which, which, Not like our <laughs> well, but clearly he's MI6, right? He, he, he goes from being an intern to suddenly he's ambassador in Yemen, and now he has this ambassador role in the UN. So he's clearly MI6 uh, kind of guy. And he, I asked him that there have been public reports that 14 out of the 33 first cabinet uh, picks uh, were on UN sanctions list. And he corrected me, he said actually it's 17 out of the 33. Uh, so this is the first cabinet in history, uh, I think, where more than half the cabinet are sanctioned by the UN and the first cabinet in history where a senior member is part of Al-Qaeda. So, you know, th this suggests something about where the Taliban are going. Uh, the UN is very clear about the alignment between, the close alignment between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Uh, General Luke mentioned the agreement. Of course, the Taliban didn't, uh, you know, the, the two points of the agreement that were really kind of key uh, not, you know, basically separating yourself from Al-Qaeda and negotiating in good faith with the Afghan government. Neither of those happened. The one thing they didn't do was attack us on the way out, well, which is part of the agreement. Well, you don't, that's what they wanted us to do. They wanted us to leave. So it would make no sense for them to attack us on the way out. But so the, the, the first thing the Taliban, sorry, the parenthesis I wanted to make there was just the nature of the Taliban cabinet suggests a pro-jihadist flavor to this government. So the first thing they, might, they may do is ethnic cleansing. That could change the politics around this. The second thing they could do is Europeans could travel to Afghanistan for training and then launch an attack in Europe, similar to the Paris 
November 2015 attack. Uh, I think that might change the politics around this, certainly for our NATO allies. Um, the third thing that could happen is that there is an attack on American interests in the region. I, for all the reasons that General Lutz already outlined, and I added a little bit to that, I think the, idea, the likelihood of an attack on the American homeland from the AFPAC region is, is extremely unlikely. It's not impossible. We did see the Pensacola attack, uh, which was a relatively small-scale attack, which was, had some relationship to al-Qaeda in Yemen. But I'm going to just basically, I think it's highly unlikely. Now, an attack on an American express office in Karachi, an attack on an American consulate in, in India, you know, these, are, these are much more plausible kinds of operations. And finally, the other thing that might change is that the, the Islamic Emirate and the, all the groups that are there, the 20 jihadi groups that are supposed to be there, um, start calling for homegrown attacks in the United States in the same way that ISIS did. And we had the San Bernardino attack, which killed 14 people, and the Orlando attack, killing 49 people. So I think each one of these things, particularly in combination, which is not impossible, would change the politics around this. And then we may be going back. After all, we've gone back before. We closed our embassy in 1989. Uh, and that was, uh, it turned out to be a rather spectacular mistake because we were blind to the rise of the Taliban and al-Qaeda. Um, and we're, we're, we're generally pretty ignorant of our own history. Um, and uh, we tend to make the same sets of mistakes. So I think that we have made a, made a mistake here, uh, which we'll, uh, unfortunately, we'll have to correct. And it may take um, some period of time. But I think embedded in the Taliban's DNA, are um, they're not a particularly competent or uh, group of people. And uh, they, I think, are likely to make um, one or two or three of these mistakes I've already outlined, uh, which would change the politics and would allow the United States to, to go back in a more meaningful way than um, over the horizon, which General Kimmett is going to talk about. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, I've, I've enjoyed listening to both speakers here. The one thing I would, if anybody really wants to see an example of General Lutz's uh, find, fix, finish operations, not in Afghanistan, but it was actually the attack on Soleimani inside of Africa, inside of uh, Iraq. Mm. Now, the one issue I think that is forgotten is you, you can't do it in isolation, find, fix, and finish. It can't simply be a military operation. It has tremendous political overtones. Yes, we didn't kill any kids. Yes, it wasn't done in a uh, uh, populated area, but it was done on the sovereign territory of an ally. And number two, we happened to kill probably the most respected leader of the militia. So even though it was a classic example of find, fix, and finish, uh, it's often important to remember the political overtones in the context of what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, let's move to Afghanistan. I think uh, you saw pretty good diametrical discussions of we doing the right thing, we doing the wrong thing. What is the future going to look like? What is the future not going to look like? Um, in my mind, there's nobody in this room that has the kind of clearances that one we used to enjoy at the Pentagon, and no less an authority than the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Colin Call, says that he could see a strike on U.S. interests, if not the homeland, within six months. So is that a, whether he's right or whether he's wrong, uh, let's take that as a predicate and say, well, can we do anything to avoid that inside of Afghanistan? And the answer is partially no, because the original sin of the agreement that was made between the United States and the Taliban had two key problems. Number one, the Taliban said that we will take on 
al-Qaeda, ISIS-K, and we will keep them out of Afghanistan. And two, the United States said, we will leave and we will not come back in without the permission of the Taliban. Well, both are wrong. We know that that original sin, which tainted this entire agreement, number one, the Taliban can't do it by themselves. And number two, we are certainly going to strike if we see an existential threat to the United States. So let's just take the agreement, set it aside, and say it really isn't worth the paper that it's written on. The United States has adhered to everything it said. The Taliban has really adhered to nothing that it has agreed to. So where does that bring us? Uh, we're now in a situation where the debacle of the withdrawal is done. L let's go back to Doha and today. And the fundamental question is, um, the United States has no responsibility to live up that agreement to that agreement because um, we agreed to it. And, and it's politically convenient not to set up, not to return, unless there's an existential threat. I think, I think the, an attack on the American homeland would be the only triggers to bring us back in. Um, so do we even have the capability to prevent that attack in the first place? Well, the answer is no. The Taliban, we certainly know, don't have the capability, or in many cases, the willingness to go against uh, uh, Islamic State Khorasan province. And the United States has positioned itself at this point that even if we wanted to attack, it would be tremendously difficult. This notion of over the horizon, in my mind, is more over the rainbow. If you take a look at how difficult it was to conduct the bin Laden raid inside of Pakistan, find, fix, finish, and the risks that came about, you, one can only imagine that short of a drone strike, how difficult it would be to put American troops or coalition allies on the ground if we saw a training camp, Tarmia Farms, as you all remember that from years, years ago. So I would just finish by saying my personal view is that short of an existential attack on the United States, we're probably going to do nothing at this point. I don't think we'll return. Um, I don't think that we will set ourselves up in bases in the region. I don't think we'll even be doing a significant amount of reconnaissance in that area. I, I hope I'm wrong. But it fundamentally comes down to the, this administration, because I think this administration is running the Ted Lasso strategy. <laughs> uh, and if nobody has seen Ted Lasso, I would strongly recommend you do. Ted Lasso asked a, one of his players, he said, what is the happiest fish in the ocean? And the player says, I don't know. And Ted Lasso says, it's a goldfish. You know why he's the happiest? It's because he has a 10 second memory. And unfortunately, I truly believe that this administration is counting on the goldfish strategy that Americans have long forgotten Afghanistan will not do anything as we talk about shifting to Asia, shifting to elsewhere. I think anybody that is concerned about Afghanistan is going to see the resources bled away from them to take on ISR over the Ukraine border right now, ISR in the South China Sea, so on and so forth. So whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong, whether Colin Call is right or Colin Call is wrong, I think we've set ourselves up in a strategy of doing nothing and hoping for the best. And um, the political context is Americans don't seem to care. So I don't think this administration cares much either. 
even though they have said they believe that ISIS-KP or ISKP has the capability to attack the homeland within the next six months. I hope I'm wrong. I think I'm really going to be wrong in terms of the capability to do it. But we have not set ourselves up because of the original sin of the agreement to be able to confront that threat if we become aware of it. That's all I have. Peter Bergen calls me a cynic. I think you can understand why. <laughs> no, I meant that as a compliment. <laughs> all right. Um, let me ask a question of each of our panelists, and we'll go in reverse order this time so that, uh, you know, Doug can be at the end of the line this time. Um, what is one realistic piece of advice you would give to the administration? You know, no third ranger battalion seizing Jalalabad airfield, or but a plausible, politically feasible set of advice to this administration to ensure or hedge or mitigate against the risk you've discussed. And you're asking me first? Yes. <clears throat> I think probably since... I've gotten about three seconds to think about it. Uh, we've got to set the Faustian bargain with the Taliban. In some method or another, we may not do side-by-side counterterrorism operations. We may not do even ask for entrance into the country. But that finding piece, I think we can do a lot with. The Taliban have far better human, human intelligence on the ground than we do. We have far better technical capabilities, whether it's other types of intelligence that this entire convention knows about. And whether we want to be in the country, whether we want to attack that uh, target or not, uh, I think as a minimum, the first thing I would do is make some outreaches to the Taliban and set up this Faustian bargain between the United States and the Taliban for some method of intel sharing. Well, yeah, I, I think that the Biden administration had a very politically sustainable situation in Afghanistan that they just blew up. 2,500 troops or 3,500 troops, whatever the number is. Um, you know, Afghans didn't care whether it was 5,000 troops or 4,000 troops. If we'd left one Marine outside the United States Embassy and said our commitment is long-term, the cheapest thing is to say our words, but words do have meaning. And, you know, we started talking about withdrawing, as General Lute knows very well, on December 1st, 2009, with the Palmer's West Point speech. And we kept saying, we're leaving, we're leaving, we're leaving. People begin to believe you. Um, and so I think my advice post facto, changing the subject of the question slightly, is would have been just, you know, you, you, you keep a, a, a small footprint. And I think, you know, there was a big debate, General Lute knows better than anybody, about what we should have done in Afghanistan. It turns out go light and go long was the most politically sustainable and I think should have been sustained uh, as, a, as a military policy. But in terms of what, where, what to do now, I, I'm, you know, we're in a terrible, terrible situation where, you know, the Taliban are, uh, they control the country. Uh, so we, we, we have to acknowledge that fact. Um, and the only thing worse than the Taliban not controlling the country is probably the Taliban fracturing into three factions, what the sort of Doha faction, the military leadership, and the commander of the faithful faction in Kandahar. Um, and then another civil war happening which would be even better for the jihadi groups, really. So, you know, we're, we have a terrible dilemma, uh, which is we need to... And 97% uh, of Af Afghans are likely to be below the poverty line this winter. So, you know, I don't really have any advice. I mean, other than, you know, we, you've got this terrible situation. Um, you have some moral obligations here to kind of get, get things right. 
So having been given the longest time to think about this, (laughs) I've got two ideas. One is that to, to address Peter's point about the moral obligation for the humanitarian crisis, which is which is on us. Okay, winter is in Afghanistan now. Um, uh, they've suffered about two years of drought. The wheat harvest is about 60% of what it ought to be. Um, whatever the numbers, it's tragic, and a lot of Afghans are going to die because of this humanitarian situation. And, and their deaths um, are not only obviously tragic for them and their families, but they're going to be laid at the doorstep of this administration because they're going to be pressed through the filter, the lens of those images on Kabul International Airport. And, and the argument, the quick political answer here will be, well, if we had stayed, these people would not be dying uh, given these, this humanitarian situation. So one thing we should do is figure out how to channel humanitarian assistance through the UN non-governmental organizations and so forth, and get that ship moving because people are going to die in the coming weeks and months. And, you know, we're still kind of haggling about we've withheld their central bank reserves and so forth. Well, that's all fine and well, uh, but the humanitarian crisis is, is going to be on us fast. And, and it's going to, we're going to relive all the worst images of August uh, mm-hmm. by way of the humanitarian situation. I think there are ways um, that would have to prove the U.S. government uh, agility and so forth. But there are ways to channel humanitarian assistance, maybe through third parties or something, so that that doesn't go directly to the Taliban. And, and, and we avoid the political argument of, well, we're rewarding the Taliban. But we've got to address this humanitarian crisis because that's the thing that's going to be laid at the doorstep before a terrorist attack. We're going to have to live through this winter, and it's going to be very ugly. The second thing is, I would, if I were at CENCOM today, I would find a damn Islamic State target, okay? Because that's we have a common enemy in the Islamic State with the Taliban, and find and fix one unlucky poor bastard in the Islamic State and prove the model mm-hmm. that you could do this from over the horizon. It might open up an opportunity. To, to share intelligence like Mark suggested, right? Because you'd be attacking the common enemy. But it almost doesn't matter who this poor guy is. Just find him. him. Just pick one, okay? Mm-hmm. And go after it and then do this because, not because you, you know, you're so, uh, so hard set on this one poor fellow, but to demonstrate the model, right? And maybe there's some deterrent effect by being able to actually show that we can do it. From overseas. And then I'd ask, I've had a lot of time to think about this. Uh, we should get serious about a base in the, in the region. And that means going to Moscow. That means talking to Putin. Um, and there's a lot to talk to Putin about. But on that list ought to be a, uh, an exchange about a base in Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, or Kyrgyzstan, someplace that gives us a regional strike capability, which vastly improves the fine, fix, finish model if we don't have to do it from the Persian Gulf. So there's, there are things that we should be doing right now on Afghanistan. My concern is that the administration has moved on. It, it took the decision. It suffered all the bad press of the August withdrawal, all those ugly images, and it's now on to other things. And this requires a concerted policy effort right now, and I, I don't see much evidence of that. Can I make two quick comments? Sure. Uh, yeah, Halazad the other day in an interview said there's, it's, he believes it's virtually impossible for the Taliban to work with us because it'll look like they're selling out to the United States and that will just be 
a huge bonus for IS inside their job. And create the, the kind of divisions that, that Peter had. Yeah, no, I agree. Inside the Taliban. Uh, and second, on the issue of humanitarian aid, uh, today the World Bank is looking to release or discussing the notion of releasing $500 million for this very purpose. So let's hope if we're not um, willing to do it directly ourselves, at least we will lift some of those sanctions and allow the World Bank to get $500 million in there through humanitarian assistance. Great. Uh, my last uh, question for the panel before we turn to the audience, since I give it, we'll, we'll start with Peter this time and just go straight down the line. Um, we have a lot of representatives from the region, from Europe here in the role. What is the, uh, here in the room, what role do regional countries and the Europeans have to play in both of these crises, the counterterrorism effort and the humanitarian crisis that is coming? What's the role for the region and Europe? Well, I, I, he, I, let me try and answer it this way. What, who is likely to recognize the Taliban and in what order? Because uh, clearly that's their main goal right now. Um, and I would say China first, uh, which would allow Pakistan to recognize them, uh, and then Russia, and then maybe Turkey, and then Qatar, which of course Qatar is playing uh, a very useful role. Um, and... Yeah, we can debate whether that's a good thing or not, uh, but I think it will happen at a, you know, in the next year, let's say. Um, and I think that is you know, somewhat helpful for some of the humanitarian issues that General Lute alluded to. Um, and I, you know, I think that you know, NATO is an alliance and many of the things that General Lute already laid out about the humanitarian crisis, um, that's a kind of shared responsibility. Unfortunately, we have, uh, you know, our NATO allies, we sort of foisted this decision on them. It's not, um, it's not a decision that they uh, really made for themselves. Uh, and they're the people, and our NATO European allies are the people who are going to have to deal with the, the vast influx of Afghan refugees that is likely to happen as a result of the country dematerializing. I actually spent a fair amount of time in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan, it's worth recalling that the World Bank stopped measuring its economic indicators because there were none. It's worth recalling that the population of Kabul was 500,000. Today, it's 5 million or 6 million. No one really knows. So the, one of the key things about the Taliban is they have no program for governance because their theory of... Uh, they have a political theory, which is that if we make society pure, everything else will be taken care of. But that doesn't suggest any kind of competence about water, electricity, or anything else. So they're going to need a lot of help um, from outside. Um, and um, that is going to come from the United States and NATO allies and, and countries like Qatar and Pakistan. Um, and so it's not really advice. I mean, it's really, it's really a statement of what's likely to happen um, going forward. So <clears throat> let me just take that question through the lens of NATO. You know, there was a lot of, um, there's some controversy coming out of NATO capital cities uh, in and around the Biden affirmation of the Trump, uh, the Trump agreement uh, that suggested that the U.S. did not adequately or sufficiently consult with NATO allies. Um, I was at NATO headquarters about a month ago as part of a lessons learned project on Afghanistan. And what I found inside NATO headquarters is that the lack of consultation that stung the worst had to do with the February 2020 agreement. Um, they literally, allies heard about the 2020 agreement uh, via the text. Uh, and, and when they asked, when they asked the U.S. 
for the text. You know, what what, what agreement? What is the, uh, it, they were denied. And the short response from NATO allies was, well, let me get this straight. The Taliban have the text and we can't get the text? That really stung hard. Um, on the other hand, in and around the Biden decision, no matter how you come down on whether you for it or against it, right? Um, there was a defense minister's meeting. There was a foreign minister's meeting. There was a defense and foreign minister's meeting together. And then there was the June summit uh, with Biden himself in, in, um, in Brussels. So it's really hard to point to a lack of consultation at that point. Now, again, some may have, for domestic political reasons, not liked the Biden withdrawal decision. But this question of you know, insufficient consultation, I don't think plays out in terms of the record. Um, I think from NATO's perspective, Afghanistan, first of all, deserves a very sober and deliberate review. And that process is underway. Who knows what will, what will come of that? But NATO gained a lot in the 20 years in Afghanistan. I mean, it gained 20, nearly 20 years of operational experience that it didn't have. This was NATO's first ever combat operation. Right, so not the Balkans. This is combat, and so all the things that go into uh, making a combat operation, a complex comp uh, operation, work. So the logistics, the communications, electronic warfare capabilities, all the sorts of things that this conference talks about. NATO had always exercised that stuff, but you know, there's a big difference between exercise and operations. And NATO gained enormous operational experience. Afghanistan for uh, NATO became an operational laboratory, and it gained a lot of capabilities um, across the, uh, in the electronic uh, communications arena, but special operations, for example. The NATO special operations forces today, many of them rival or are on a par with the U.S. special operations forces. Why? Because of the reps, the repetitions in Afghanistan. Um, so NATO gained a lot. And I think finally, as Americans, we ought to remember that on September 12th, 2001, NATO uh, allies stood in unison at a council meeting in Brussels, right, and, and invoked Article 5. So the first and only time in the 72-year hi history of the alliance, it was on the point where we needed NATO the most that NATO stood in unison alongside of us. We shouldn't forget that. Um, th that's what being in alliance means. You know, we had always imagined that on the day it would be America rescuing Europe, you know, America coming to coming to the needs of our European allies. But on September 12th, it was the inverse, uh, and we shouldn't forget that. Yeah, I think it's time to get on to the questions uh, from the audience. But simply, I think going back to the fundamental question, what can our coalition partners do? I think in, in going forward, particularly in the humanitarian aid area. Um, simply add capability and legitimacy. Obviously, the Americans are seen too much as part of the agreement. When you bring in the legitimacy of coalition partners, uh, this is not just the Americans that are trying to do whatever they're trying to do with regards to the agreement and the post-military um, uh, operation. Um, obviously, foreign countries are far better experienced in delivering humanitarian aid than the United States are. So I think that primarily in the area of humanitarian aid, bringing in the coalition allies, bringing in all allies, adds legitimacy and adds capability to the delivery of humanitarian aid. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. 
Please tell your friends and colleagues about our podcast and our sister podcast, The History of Crows, and help others discover them by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.